Good morning, church family. We're in a series over the Lord's Prayer, and this morning we're going to be looking at Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. This is God's word. How do we change America. That's the title of an article that I read recently, which prompted me to think about the Lord's Prayer. We often think about the Lord's Prayer uh, the way we think about Psalm 23, the rote recitation of verses besides green pastures and still waters. But I think it's important for us to remember that Jesus links his prayer to this parable. A parable about perseverance. Jesus gives us his picture of what the Lord's prayer is meant to be. Jesus situates his prayer at midnight. A homeowner receives an unexpected friend at an inopportune time with a simple request. Bread. You have none, but you know who does. So you go to the one whom you know can help. And you're told the unthinkable. Come back later. And then Jesus says, no friend would ever do that. He argues from the lesser to the greater. And if a friend would never do that, do you think God would? Of course not. So Jesus wants to know, am I willing to keep pounding on the door on behalf of others in their time of need, even when it's uncomfortable for me? See, that's the situation in which Luke's version of the Lord's prayer occurs. Now, who's who in this parable? Well, the midnight guest is the crisis. The crisis in our nation right now. The crisis in our community, it is a deeply layered crisis. There's a medical crisis, a racial crisis, an injustice crisis, a spiritual crisis. The crisis cries for help. And the one who has the bread is God. And we, Windsor Road Christian Church, The brothers and sisters in Christ who constitute the body of Christ, we are in the middle. And these verses are calling us to get up from our place of comfort and go to God on behalf of others. 
So this parable forces me to ask, am I willing to persevere in prayer and its accompanying good works to meet the needs of those who come to me at an unexpected time? Our country is coming to us. Our community is crying out. Brothers and sisters in Christ are coming and crying out in light of the killings that have occurred in our country. Consider each of the following person's final moments before the reckless use of police power ended their lives. Eric Garner had just broken up a fight, according to witness testimony. Ezel Ford was walking in his neighborhood. Michelle Cousseau was changing the lock on her home's door when police arrived to take her to a mental health facility. Tanisha Anderson was having a bad mental health episode and her brother called 911. Tamir Rice, 12 years old, was playing in the park. Natasha McKenna was having a schizophrenic episode when she was tased in Fairfax, Virginia. Walter Scott was going to an auto parts store. Betty Jones answered the door to let Chicago police officers in to help her neighbor upstairs who had called 911 to resolve a domestic dispute. Philando Castile was driving home from dinner with his girlfriend. Botham Jean was eating ice cream in his living room in Dallas. Tatiana Jefferson was babysitting her nephew at home in Fort Worth, Texas. Eric Reason was pulling into a parking spot at a local chicken and fish shop. Dominique Clayton was sleeping in her bed. Breonna Tater was also sleeping in her bed. And George Floyd was at the grocery store. And just last week, Sean Monterosa was shot and killed by Vallejo, California police who mistook the hammer at his waist for a gun. This list is not exhaustive. Can we understand why our black and brown citizens and residents, some of whom are our brothers and sisters in Christ, can we understand why they do not feel safe before the law? Now, church... You know that my son is a police officer who serves honorably in our community. He grew up in this church, was baptized in this church, and married in this church. And you know that we have noble and skilled law enforcement personnel in our church family. You know that. And you also know that when Law enforcement is reckless with power. It is egregious because theirs is delegated power. Our police and military are agents of the state. They represent the state. And in these cases, they misrepresented the state. They misrepresent the purpose of the state to ensure justice and to promote domestic tranquility. And worst of all, the reckless use of police power misrepresents God. In Romans chapter 13, God commissions the state to be an instrument of his justice. And our just God does not put his knee on the necks of innocent image bearers. He's our father. And Jesus gives us his prayer to cry out to our father. 
And we must cry with our hurting brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one portion of our church family hurts, we all hurt. Beloved church, a portion of us are hurting. And Romans 12, 5 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And there is much weeping we are in a season of weeping. My black and brown brothers and sisters in Christ are telling me that they are weary and they are fatigued. And so we pray the Lord's Prayer. We pound on the door of God. Father God, we are your children. My brothers and sisters are in pain. I am in pain. We know that you can help. You made the heavens and the earth. We want your will done. And right now, your will on earth is not being done. But hear me. We are fooling ourselves if we think that the solution is simply better training. <laughs> That's a symptom. Sin runs deeper than you think. Behind the abuse of power by some in the police is an insidious systemic racism that has infected our country since before its birth. Racism and abuse did not originate in America or Europe. Racism's origin is in Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent tempted the man and the woman with these words. Did God really say? Satan's first words out of his mouth questioned the will and word of God. And when the man and the woman took the serpent's words over God's word, the God whose word gave them their lives, then all hell broke loose. And there is nothing that remains unaffected by their sin. The scope of sin is total. That's why it's called total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. It means that every crevice and corner of this universe has been corrupted by sin. We are infected with sin. And sin is the elevation of any standard above God's standard. And another word for this is idolatry. At its root, racism is idolatry. Racism claims that I have the right to assign value to, to another based on my preference of pigmentation. That, that this life is more valuable than that life because of the amount of melanin in the human body. And it shows up in the American experience with whites and non-whites. It shows up worldwide. Hutus and Tutsis. Haitians and Dominicans. Koreans and Japanese. In Australia with Anglos and Aborigines. In South Africa with Apartheid. And in the Bible with Hebrews and Samaritans. America is not alone in its struggle for equality. Because the sin of racism is worldwide. And only Christ can change the sin of defaming human life, racial bias, and racist behavior. Only Christ. Are you willing to let Christ rule your heart? 
I mean, he showed us what peacemaking is about. He spoke to the Samaritan woman. He healed the servant of a Roman centurion and the daughter of a Syrophoenician woman. He offered the kingdom to Pontius Pilate and the rich young man. His disciples were from a range of backgrounds. Matthew was a tax collector, pro-Rome. Simon was a Hebrew zealot, contra-Rome. Peter was a fisherman. Judas was a traitor. Jesus prayed, Thy will be done. And here is God's will, according to Paul in Ephesians 2, 14 and 16. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us, that's Jews and non-Jews, the nations, Paul says, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In Christ, there is a new humanity. The old is gone. Behold, all things are new. So we go to God, banging on his door, asking for gospel bread, and we will not stop pounding until he gives us what he deems is good, and the gospel is good. It's good news. And then, we embody this gospel. We embody the good news of God to our community, to our families, to our world. And what does that look like specifically? Well, here we go. Listen, lament, legislate. Listen, lament, legislate. Those three words come from the Old Testament a hero named Nehemiah. He was born in Babylon and promoted to the responsibility of cupbearer. Cupbearer to the king of Persia. A cupbearer's job was to make sure that the king's meals weren't poisoned. But his responsibilities went beyond that. It was like a cabinet post. In other words, Nehemiah had access to the king. And Nehemiah's story is how he heard the plight of oppressed people and how he responded in thought, word, heart, and deed to make a difference in his world. God used Nehemiah to keep his city, Jerusalem, safe. And how? Listen, lament, legislate. First, he listened. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, stop right there. 
Do you see the verbs there? I asked. They said, I heard. I heard. Listen. Listen. One of my African-American colleagues, Pastor James, put it this way. Randy, are you hearing me? Are you willing to hear me? Can our congregation be a safe place for dialogue? Another colleague, Pastor Willie, taught me about the principle of emulsification. Emulsification. So oil and water don't mix. But when you add the egg, there's the binder. The egg keeps it all together. Who keeps us together? The cross of Jesus Christ keeps us together. The cross is both vertical and horizontal. Jesus is our peace. And because he is a, our peacemaker and peacekeeper, why wouldn't I want to listen openly and non-defensively without interrupting my brother and sister in Christ in their pain? I want to hear your heart. Tell me what's on your heart. When Nehemiah's first heard word that Jerusalem's wall was in ruins and the returning exiles were vulnerable, he did not interpret that experience from his own privileged perspective. He, he did not think, well, what did they do to cause that? Rather, he entered into the pain of the oppressed by listening. And this is such a critical step in dealing with racism. When you allow yourself to be moved by the pain of others, then the doors of your life will swing open to the rest of the world. If, brothers and sisters, if you are not emotionally moved by Ahmad Aubrey's murder, three shotgun blasts to the body of an unarmed man who was jogging. If you're not moved by the brazen act of murder against George Floyd, the officer's eyes were gazing at the camera while his knee was on his neck. If that does not fill you with grief, I mean, I have to ask, does, does the heart of Christ beat within your life? Weeping and grieving stories of oppression will free your caged heart from self-protection and defensiveness. But it's risky. It's risky to learn that your view of yourself and your world is incomplete. To, to open your heart to the stories of your church family is to let go of control and suffer. Suffer. Suffer with your brothers and sisters. And when we listen, when we truly listen, we will learn uncomfortable truths. In, in meeting with my black and brown pastor friends, this much has been communicated. Randy, black churches don't trust white churches in our community. Why? Because there's a lot of pain and frustration about the black experience in America and in Champaign County. And so, so to even enter into a conversation is chancy. It's risky. Because when it gets awkward, are we going to walk? Are we going to say, well, why is this the issue? Or, but what about, but what about, or are we going to throw out a statistic? 
I've never gotten far in a difficult conversation with my wife by throwing out a statistic. And as long as there's a they and a them and a those, there's no us. But if I'm willing to listen, that I'm willing to hear a brother or sister in Christ's lived reality, and no African-American should have to fear being mistaken for an intruder because he takes his trash from his home to his garbage can at midnight. But are we willing to listen to the experience of another and especially the experience of a brother or sister in Christ. Some of you have asked me, what is my hardest task in ministry? And I'll just, I'll just tell you what it is. It is sitting with those who are suffering. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 15, Ezekiel said, I came to the exiles at Tel Abib, who were dwelling by the Kabar Canal, and I sat where they were dwelling. I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. Are you willing to stick it out for seven days, sitting and listening to your brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering? That, that's, that's where we are here. Listen. Listen and then lament. Lament. Nehemiah saw the evil that had befallen his people because he had a spirituality of lamenting. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4 says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and prayer before the God of heaven. So notice, Nehemiah didn't start problem solving, though he's an excellent problem solver. He doesn't barge in like a savior with a rescue plan as if this were his latest project. He's not even sure he's supposed to be part of the solution, but he allows himself to sit powerless in the presence of God. And so to lament is to pray, God, it's not supposed to be this way. God, this isn't right. God, I can't fix this. But God, you can. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And so we pound on your door. And we will not leave until you give us what only you can give us. Gospel bread, nourishment, strength. So Lord, we confess we are part of the problem Forgive us our trespasses. Nehemiah says in chapter 1 verse 6, we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Now I think that's the most difficult part of lamenting because Nehemiah did not personally commit the sins that led Israel to exile in Babylon. He wasn't even born when they were first hauled to Babylon. And yet he associated with and identified with his forefathers who did. He owned the problem. Nehemiah 1.7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah squarely faces the blame. We have brought this oppression on ourselves. We have sinned. We were warned not to turn our backs on God, but we didn't listen. Oh God, please forgive us. I think this kind of lamenting needs to happen among white Americans and especially white Americans who call themselves Christians. 
We say too many inane things like, well, my family never owned any slaves, or my parents started out poor too, or I worked hard for my wealth. Brothers and sisters, I beg you, please swallow your pride and like Nehemiah, confess the sins of our forefathers, both past and present. Oh Lord, we, we white people have sinned against you. Now historically, America's economy and social system have favored whites at the expense of non-whites. And we've trusted this system for our good and happy future instead of trusting the Lord of the universe to provide for us. We've subtly and not so subtly benefited from a pro-white world every day of our lives. God, we come to you. Have mercy on us. We need you. Nehemiah is not sugarcoating the problem. He's confessing sin against God. The Chicago Tribune this week had an informative article about George Floyd's life. And yes, it was complicated. Yes, he served time in prison. And I've heard comments like, well, he was no angel. Why do people say that? Must, he be, must a victim be an angel to receive sympathy? It's irrelevant to the injustice of his death. And here's the deal. There are no angels. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer and a murderer. The apostle Paul approved of Stephen's death. There are only sinners at Windsor Road Christian Church. And the pastor is one too. In lament, Nehemiah speaks God's word back to God. Verse 9, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Only God has the ability to gather his people only God can rescue us from our individualism. Only God can bring us and make us into a new community. Nehemiah sits in God's presence as both an individual and a representative of God's people. He listened. He lamented. And then he legislated. That's right. Nehemiah gets involved in the solution. He asks God to let him be part of the solution. Give me success today as I approach the king to fund this venture. Nehemiah was not wealthy, but he knows who is. And how tempting it would be for him to think, well, I'd like to help Jerusalem out, but if I only had more money. Instead, he looks around and he realizes that he has access to the king and he must summon the courage to ask. And he senses that God placed him as cupbearer for such a time as this. And Nehemiah makes the most of his access to power. And the king gives him his debit card. <laughs> and Nehemiah procures a forest of timber and materials. 
And Nehemiah becomes the governor in Jerusalem and that area with all of its privileges, which Nehemiah did not use for his own selfishness. He used whatever privilege he had for the flourishing of his, of his land. Huh. And we have power as American citizens. We've been given privileges to petition our government for redress. We have constitutional rights to assemble, to peacefully protest, to worship, to vote. And when you vote, here's the threshold. Micah 6, 8. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly before God. And this verse applies to the entire citizenry and it especially applies to the leaders of that citizenry locally, statewide, and nationally. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly before your God. And in a church our size, when we enter the voting booth, we will have different conclusions and that's where it gets awkward, right? That's where it gets awkward. Let it get awkward. Let's embrace the awkwardness. That, see, that's the part of working things out, working out our consciences, working out our differences, our distinctives in a way that brings us together. Emulsification. Christ is who holds us together. Uh, in his book, Resilient Faith, Gerald Sitzer wrote that after the birth of the church, Christians became a nation within a nation, a new universal commonwealth that spanned the known world, crossing traditional cultural barriers. Their primary loyalty was to fellow believers, not nation or race or tribe or party or class. And as a result, our spiritual ancestors were full of hope because they fully believed that the tomb was empty. Christ is risen. Total depravity wilts before Christ's total sovereignty. Racism is not more difficult to defeat than death, and Christ has conquered death. And though the full measure of Christ's victory awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth, we're not forbidden the beginnings of it here and now. Some of you have written me and in love informed me of your desire for, for me to be more explicit from the Lord on this matter. You know, this medium of online preaching, it is a bizarre thing. <laughs> I have never before until this season spent Sunday mornings sitting on my couch. And you must know that's awkward in and of itself. Sunday morning for a pastor to be sitting on his couch. I've never before until this season spent Sunday morning sitting on my couch with my wife next to me watching me preach. And you know, as I was watching last Sunday, I had this nagging feeling that something just wasn't right. 
And after the online service was over, my wife Sarah leaned over to me, kissed me on the cheek, and she said, I think you should have been more explicit. She's exactly right. So my intention today is to be more explicit. And I hope that any unintentional lack of clarity from me about gospel truth on the sacredness of human life has been explicitly clarified. Racism, police brutality, discrimination are not political issues. They are gospel issues. And I ask us, no. In the Lord, I command us, according to his word, to place our identities, political, national, vocational, educational, gender. We must place those very important identities beneath the supreme identity of our relationship to Christ. And to the degree that we do that, brothers and sisters, and I beg you to join me in doing that, to the degree that we do that, we will shine like stars at night in a crooked and depraved generation. Church family, our citizenship is in heaven. Let us live like that. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And the church said, Amen.